happy. Well, it would be helpful to keep uh, Daniel chapter 9 open in front of you as I refer to it today. What does the godly person look like? If I was to ask you as you're going out today, and I promise that I won't do it, but if I was to ask you, what do you think are some of the key ingredients, chief characteristics of the godly person? What sort of things would you say? I I did ask a few people recently. Here are some of the responses that I got. Uh, The godly person is the person who uses words wisely. Another person, the godly person, uh, is the person who gives cheerfully. Thirdly, the person who loves people. Fourthly, the person who's filled with compassion or somebody else who said they were filled with the Spirit. Now, it's an important question. I think it's a question that we should ask and do ask as Christians uh, in wanting to align our minds and our hearts and our lives with what God says in his word. We're constantly asked, what does the godly person look like? The second reason I ask that this morning is I wonder if, as you've read through Daniel, you might have got this impression that the godly person is somebody who has great visions and stands in front of, front of uh, angry kings and gives good responses, somebody who, who goes through fiery furnaces or survives lion's dens. Uh, a few years ago when I was working at a church, there was a young man in the church who had just become a Christian and we were preaching through Daniel and I stopped him and asked him how he was finding Daniel and he said he was a bit depressed. It's a bit annoying as a preacher. I thought, well, why? And he said, well... As he was reading Daniel, this is what he thought. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to be like, to, to rise to those great heights. And I tried to comfort him and, and say, no, that's not the case. Most people have stood before kings like that have ended up dying. Most people have gone to the lion's den have ended up being shredded apart. Didn't exactly encourage him. But the reality is, for every person, I guess, as a Christian in history who's had to go through what Daniel went through, many of them have died. Many of them have not been able to interpret dreams of rogue kings who have had visions and most who have stood in the lion's den have not survived. Now, we're in no doubt that as we read through Daniel, he comes across as a godly man. No doubt at all. We actually have very little information in the early chapters of Daniel about what shaped Daniel, what made him to be the godly man that he has. We don't have much insight into his upbringing or who taught him how to understand God and his word and his promises, uh, the foundations for his godliness. But today in chapter 9, I actually do think that we get some very helpful insights into Daniel, the godly man. So there are two things I want to do before I want to look at the response to Daniel's prayer. Firstly, I want to remind you that Daniel as a man has big ears. One of the chief characteristics of a godly person is that they have big ears. What we find is that Daniel is a man who himself soaked himself in the scriptures. He regularly stopped and read the scriptures and so in verse 2 we find here in chapter 9, in the first year of the reign um, of Darius, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures I understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. Daniel as a man is obviously takes time out to read God's word. Now his Bible is a little bit different to our Bible. It's a little bit shorter. Um, 
And even if Jeremiah had been one of the most recent prophets writing in the time that Daniel lived, even here Daniel considers that his writings, his prophecies, are part of God's word and he's reading them. Now I'm sure you've been reminded in the first few weeks of looking at Daniel that when the people went into exile, most of the external symbols or structures of Israelite worship that were set up to help focus them to live the godly life had been taken away, ripped away. No more Jerusalem, God's city, the holy hill. No more temple. No more sacrifices. No more priestly class to teach them. The outward symbols had been taken away. And the reality is that they'd been taken away because many Israelites had already given up reading God's word. Trusting God's word. Soaking themselves in it in a daily basis. They'd stopped reflecting on God's promises They'd been trusting in the external structures and it had got them into real trouble. Now I think certainly for these exiles who had been carried off there would have been a further temptation to give up completely on God's word if they hadn't understood what it is that God was doing for them. They'd been carried off, homes had been destroyed, city they loved destroyed, family members killed. Not like refugees today where there's a few lawyers waiting in the wings for the refugees to get here to take up their case. No $10,000 cheque waiting for these exiles to go back if they wanted to. It was tough. And we know that God predicted that this was going to happen way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. As God had predicted what was going to happen when they'd be carried off the exile many years later, he said, this will be your mindset when you're carried off. You will have anxious minds, weary eyes and despairing hearts. And many of them did give up because they didn't understand what God was doing and yet Daniel doesn't. Why? Fundamentally because he was a man with big ears who read God's word, who listened to the prophets. You know, I think if anything for Daniel there might have been another temptation to give up on God's word. Not because times were too tough, but because times were too good for him. He'd stood before the rule of the mighty Babylon where all those problems are happening now and was asked by our king to interpret a dream that he hadn't even heard and God gave him this incredible wisdom. He went into the lion's den and survived the hungry lions. His friends got thrown into the fiery furnace and he stood the test time. He might have been tempted to think, I'm doing pretty good here, aren't I? Great things are happening through me. Put aside God's word, I'm the vision interpreter here. Not to say that even in my lifetime, like many of you have been Christians for a while, there have been a number of well-known Christian leaders in Australia and around the world who have fallen, who have had wonderful ministry opportunities, who have built churches and missions, have reached great heights in terms of influence for the gospel and yet have fallen. And time and time again we find that they lost their footing when their confidence got built up in themselves and what they were doing, their own gifts and abilities and they stopped humbly having big ears to read God's word. See it doesn't matter who you are and what you're going through, tough times or good times it's so important that we're like Daniel that we're grounded in God's word that we soak up his word, that we read and we reflect and we find that Daniel was reading in particular what we know as Jeremiah chapter 29, not that they had chapters verses in those days but it's our Jeremiah chapter 29 we know from listening to what Daniel says it was a letter that was written recently prophecy written recently 
And there are a couple of very relevant things out of Jeremiah 29 that we probably should think about before we read Daniel's prayer. Here are a couple of things. We don't have time to look at Jeremiah chapter 29. But if you would look there, you would find that in verse 7, for example, Jeremiah says that when you go into exile, what you're supposed to do is to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city and pray for that city that you're going to, which is a little bit astonishing because we might expect exiles when they're carried away to undermine their captors and the city that they're going to. But here Jeremiah says to seek the peace and the prosperity and to pray for that city. The second thing in verse 8 of Jeremiah 29, it says that you ought to watch out, Daniel, for those amongst you who claim to be prophets, those who claim to have dreams in my name, because many of them are liars. It's ironic, isn't it? Watch out for your own people who are claimed to have dreams. He goes into the foreign country and who's having the dreams? It's the king of Babylon himself. God's actually speaking through the king and not through some of your own people. Watch out, be careful. Thirdly, he says, Jeremiah 29, that 70 years will pass before the exile will be over. Now that's crucial for Daniel because almost 70 years are up and he's wondering how long. But fourthly, as you read Jeremiah 29, and this is crucial, Jeremiah is saying to the exiles, the turning point will come when God's people in exile will repent and turn and seek God in prayer. And it is that last idea that I think was ringing deeply in Daniel's mind when he was reading Jeremiah, reading God's word, reading the scriptures, that led secondly to my point this morning that Daniel is a man with a humble heart. A very humble heart despite his circumstances. Daniel's response to reading Jeremiah is to pray. And he basically prays, how long Lord? Until we get to go home. Now that prayer of how long is, is a prayer that believers have been asking praying, pleading many, many times down through history, all the way from Genesis chapter 3, when God said one day someone's going to come who's going to crush Satan, a descendant of Adamine who will crush Satan, people have been praying, how long, Lord, how long, how long? Through good times and bad times, especially in the tough times, Lord, how long until you relieve us from this suffering? Look at verse 3 and fall and fine with me as I read verse 3. Daniel says this, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. We have not listened. Now as we go on, we find it's a fairly confronting prayer. At least it was for me. And there are lots of things that we can digest here. Firstly, did you notice the seriousness with which Daniel prays? Verse 3, with fasting, in sackcloth, and in ashes. Now, I think for most of us, these ideas of fasting, sackcloth and ashes are fairly foreign to us. It would be wrong to think that somehow Daniel is doing this, fasting and sackcloth and ashes, to try and manipulate God. 
what I think is really happening is that Daniel is trying to show outwardly how earnestly he's pleading for God to answer his prayer. For many years we used to kneel and pray in church. We don't do it today. It doesn't matter that we do or we don't. Again, it was just one of those outward signs of an inward earnestness in prayer. Here Daniel chooses to give up some optional items, food to fast, nice clothes for sackcloth, being clean and a nice shower, putting the ashes on, that he might demonstrate his earnestness, his seriousness in praying. Now here's a question for us. Do you actually consider those things optional things? Food, nice clothes, being clean? Were they the necessities of life, the things that we have to put on before we can possibly pray? I think if Daniel lived today and had been running, he probably would have said, you know, I, I didn't go to the barista and get my coffee. I didn't pick my iPad up and download the Sydney Morning Herald. I didn't even check my emails before I got down to pray. What is essential for you on a daily basis? Is it food, clothes, electric blankets, emails? Or do we think that praying so essential in life. What's your view of prayer? As people with big ears, do you also have that humble heart? Secondly, notice the nature of the confession that Daniel makes. He says at least eight times, we have sinned. We sinned, we turned away, we didn't listen, we were wicked, we're covered in shame, we rebelled and we didn't obey. Notice that he doesn't say, oh God, people back there in Israel many years they sinned and I'm feeling the consequences of it. My friend, not like that. He doesn't even say that the leaders sinned. He says that we've all sinned. Now Daniel was a pretty young man when he was carried off into exile. We know that from the beginning. We would have had good reason to blame somebody else. No, we sinned. We all sinned together. What's he doing? He's identifying himself with the sins of his fathers and other generations. Now there's no doubt Israel sinned. They ignored God. He's also acknowledging the serious nature of the sin of Israel, all of Israel. This this wasn't a pagan nation that ignored God. This was God's chosen people. Blessed, set apart in a covenant relationship, this marriage relationship with God. They had his presence. They had his word. They had the symbols. And they had turned away. And it was this lack of understanding, really, of sin that had got Israel into trouble so often. Such an important principle, isn't it, that we get from God's Word. Once we lose track or touch with the reality of our sin, we're on a slippery slope down. One of the new badges of honour in our society today is the badge of honour of busyness. So many people are actually proud so busy. You know it and I know it, don't you? I think my grandparents who died 45 years ago would laugh at us. And even amongst Christians in Christian circles, I hear the reason that people give for not having time in God's word, big ears and humble hearts praying, is that we're too busy. You know what the reality is? The reality is that we're not too busy. The reality is that we've lost our understanding of sin, our sinfulness. Yes, we've been forgiven. God is a gracious God. But we're still sinful, aren't we? We need to recognise it on a daily basis. Thirdly, Daniel pleads for forgiveness based on God's character. Look at verse 16. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, 
turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our Father, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Again, notice what Daniel is actually saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying, Lord, we've actually improved. We've got a little bit better. Not as bad as before. He's not saying that we've sorted out of behavioural issues. He's not saying we've set up a plan with five points we think are achievable in the long run and we've got to work towards this lovely vision. He's not saying, oh, <laughs> OK, Lord, we've learnt our lessons, you know, kings and visions and dreams and lines. And that's enough. We're moving on. But what he says, you, God, are an awesome God whose nature is that mercy. Now, he's not trying to remind God of something that God somehow forgot. No, God, did you forget the... No, he's not like that. He's acknowledging before God this great truth that our God fundamentally is a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of forgiveness. He's acknowledging that God's name has been dishonoured greatly. Jerusalem, God's place that he chose to reveal himself and put his presence in the temple is now desolate. I think in our society, Western society, especially in Australian society, we're not one of those cultures that thinks in terms of shame and honour. I know other cultures do it. We hear about honour killings around the world. It probably gives us a certain view of this honour-shame idea. But it should concern us in our daily lives that God's name is honoured or dishonoured or shamed. In verse 12 there, Daniel really reminds us of the nature of this exile and the event. He says, under the whole heaven, under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem in the exile and the crushing. God's name has been greatly dishonoured. This is a catastrophe for the name of Yahweh, his holy name. Daniel also acknowledges that God is right. God is righteous in verse 7 in taking his people into exile and punishing them. His appeal then is on the basis of God's character, God's mercy. God throughout the scriptures from beginning to end, especially when he reveals his name and his nature, he reveals himself as a merciful God, something that Israel had forgotten. And so Daniel then goes on to appeal on the basis of God's promises. God had promised before God's people had even gone into the promised land the first time under Moses and Joshua, God had predicted they'd go in, they'd make many mistakes, they'd be carried off into exile and that God's returning to his people would come when they turned and repented and pleaded with God on the basis of his character. And we can read it in in places like Deuteronomy 30, if you've got time, or 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon's Prayer, where it talks about when you repent, when you turn, when you acknowledge your sin, then God again will come and do great things. I think sometimes in Christian circles, we possibly as Christians get a little bit nervous about being bold before God and asking big things. Possibly, reflecting on myself, it's because we get drummed into us that our prayers mustn't be too selfish. But we must also not forget that our God is a big God who invites us to pray bold things, that he would turn hearts, 
that people would see his word, understand his character, know his promises. And the Lord's Prayer is a great example, isn't it, of a bold prayer. Well, here's Daniel, big ears, humble heart, reading his word, responding in prayer. Earnest prayer, serious prayer. What do we find happens in response? Well, very briefly, in the second half of chapter 9, that we won't look at in detail God responds. It says in chapter 9, verse 20, that an angel comes to Daniel and answers his prayer. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Gabriel comes. He's already come already to Daniel. At significant times in God's word, angels do come to God's people. When they were led out of Egypt to the promised land, there was the angel leading them. As they're about now to go back into the promised land out of exile, there's another angel about to lead them. Look at verse uh, 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the early vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel... I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. Wouldn't that be great? Every time we pray, an answer was given. It doesn't happen too often under God's grace. He goes to say, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore consider the message and understand the vision. And here's this vision that's given. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now I think Daniel probably had a bit of a groan at this point. He was expecting the angel probably to say everything's going to be wind up, you're going back to Jerusalem really soon, 70 years are up, Jeremiah's right. What does the angel say to him? He says 70 times 7. Now, now we know that phrase from when Jesus said to Peter, Peter came to Jesus and said how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times. Jesus says 70 times 7. Similar sort of idea there. Daniel, 70 times 7. More, longer, greater, bigger than you ever expected. Now we might be thinking, or Daniel might have thought, well, has Jeremiah got it wrong? The 70 years that he prophesied, aren't we about to go back? No, it's not that Jeremiah got it wrong. It's that what the angel and what God ultimately is revealing to Daniel here is a much bigger vision than just the short-term question of when we're going to go back to Jerusalem. What the angel does here is he gives him a very long-term view of history. And in verse 24 there, what the angel summarises really in one verse is all of history from going back to Jerusalem, the years in between, lots of problems, the Messiah coming, the kingdom being established, the kingdom gospel going out and Jesus coming the second time. All that's conflated into one verse. That's the thing that God wants Daniel to see so that he might be a man of faith, trusting God. Look in verse 24 again. He says, Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people. For what? For the holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin. When does that happen? To atone for wickedness finally, to bring in an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. When do all those things happen? Well, that's all of history, isn't it? all compacted together, a conflation of all these events. Now as we read other prophecies in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Micah, the other prophets do similar things. They're looking at the future and they seem to compact so much into such a small number of words. 
again it's a reminder to Daniel that what he has planned is more than just going back to the city but his kingdom being established and his rule coming sin being dealt with and everlasting righteousness being established here on earth it's a big idea for Daniel God has heard you Daniel he's in control and he's going to continue doing mighty things who is the godly person it's interesting looking at church history that various Christians from time to time (coughs) have chosen to label some people as the saints when actually the Bible calls all of his people the saints Christians in various denominations have said look that's the saint over there and they've labelled some of them there was a guy in history who supposedly preached after his head was lobbed off he was decapitated that's that's what made him a saint. There's another guy who was a saint who apparently shooed all the snakes out of Ireland. There was another saint who slayed a dragon. Now, is this a view of saints, of godly people that we're supposed to have? In fact, it's an unhelpful view. We are the saints. We can live lives like Daniel. What does that mean? It means that we are the would-be ears who regularly sit under God's word, soak it up, trust him despite the good and the bad and the ugly that's happening in our lives we are people who are the saints when we acknowledge daily our sinfulness with humble hearts and we are the saints who pray with confidence based on God's revealed character and his promises to us we are the saints called to live lives as Daniel did well let's pray Now, Father, again, we do thank you for your living word. We thank you that you've spoken to us this morning. Father, we pray that you'd give us big hearts and big ears and courage to obey your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.